and welcome back to GemCast. I'm Christina Shenvey, and I'm joined today by Maura Kennedy. Maura is the chief of the Division of Geriatric Emergency Medicine at a little hospital you may have heard of called MassGen in Boston, and she's also the past president of the Academy of Geriatric Emergency Medicine. Today, we're going to be talking about three words that probably give you some mixed emotions, and those are orthostatic vital signs in older patients in the ED. Are they useful? Are they not useful? Are they a red herring? What should we do with them? Should we be getting them? So, Maura, thank you so much for joining us. And it's a pleasure to be here. I understand that you have an article coming out shortly in the Acute Geriatric Series in the Journal of Emergency Medicine Australasia. Tell me about this series. The series itself is an open access series in Emergency Medicine Australasia, and it reviews key topics pertaining to the emergency care of older adults. To date, they've covered elder abuse, delirium, trauma, frailty, UTIs, and sepsis. Wonderful. Well, I know you usually focus your work and your research on delirium. What made you interested in orthostatic vital signs? Well, Christina, like I'm sure many of our colleagues, it comes up all the time when I'm caring for patients clinically. I was trained that orthostatic vital signs have really limited utility in the care that we provide patients in the emergency department and often abnormal in asymptomatic individuals. And yet time and time again, when I admit a patient with syncope or I'm consulting neurology for a dizzy patient, my colleagues in medicine, geriatrics, or neurology would ask me about whether I've obtained orthostatic vital signs. One of my mentors in geriatrics challenged me to look personally into the literature behind orthostatic vital signs in the ED and outside of the ED. Initially, I did it for a journal club, and eventually I decided to create this manuscript. You are spot on. All the time we get asked, well, what did the orthostatic vital signs show? And I kind of internally think, well, I don't necessarily care what they show because there's so many false positives and false negatives. But they're, they probably have a point. So why do we have such a difference in opinion between ourselves and EM and then other practitioners? In my opinion, I think there are three main reasons for our differences in opinion. First is that we're really looking at very different clinical conditions. Second, we are looking at different populations. And third, we are using different measurements to define abnormal. So tell me more about that. The early literature really focused on using orthostatic vital signs to try and identify hypovolemia. I remember in my orientation prior to my intern year going through ATLS and seeing a chart of the different stages of hypovolemic shock. And from that, we learned that heart rate changes occurred before blood pressure changes. And so there were a number of early studies that tried to look at what combination of heart rate and blood pressure changes could identify how hypovolemic someone was uh, and how to use that in the care that we give patients. On the other hand, much of the literature our colleagues in medicine and neurology are doing is looking at orthostatic hypotension in syncope, near syncope, dizziness, and falls. And they're predominantly looking at this in an older patient population as opposed to a young trauma population. Now, as I recall, the EM literature showed that orthostatic vital signs were not useful clinically. Is that correct? So yes and no would be my answer. There are a few key articles that looked at this issue. Two looked at changes in orthostatic vital signs and whether they could detect a 450 cc blood loss namely blood donors at blood banks. Another looked at hypovolemic patients and compared them to non-hypovolemic controls. And another looked at orthostatic vital signs in presumed euvolemic patients. 
And didn't the latter study find that a large number of uvolemic patients do have abnormal orthostatic vital signs? That's correct. This is a study that was published in about 1991 by Koziel and McLean, and they reported that 43% of ED patients who were presumed to be uvolemic had abnormal vital signs. So 43% makes it seem like orthostatic vitals aren't particularly useful because that's quite a number of patients. I completely agree that on the surface, it appears that uh, orthostatic vital signs would not be useful based on the study. But there are a couple of really important caveats. First, this study was a study about orthostatic vital signs, not orthostatic hypotension. So they looked at changes in heart rate as well as blood pressure on standing. By their definition, if your heart rate increased by 20 or more or your blood pressure decreased by 10 or more, you had abnormal vital signs. And while they never break out in the article what percentage of that 43% was from heart rate changes versus hypotension, we can presume that most of it was probably due to postural tachycardia because the mean change in heart rate in this population was 17. So the threshold for having an abnormal orthostatic heart rate was 20, and in this population, the mean change was an increase in 17. The mean changes in blood pressure were an increase in 3 and 9. So I strongly suspect that most of the abnormal changes that they found were orthostatic tachycardia as opposed to orthostatic hypotension. Secondly, there was another study published around the same time that looked at individuals donating blood at a blood center. They used similar definitions of abnormal orthostatic vital signs and found that 2% of the people in their population had abnormal orthostatic vital signs. What were the conclusions of the studies that looked at hypovolemic patients? So all of these studies found statistically significant correlations between changes in heart rate, namely increases in heart rate, and decreases in blood pressure on standing with volume loss. In other words, people who were hypovolemic, when they stood, their heart rate went up and or their blood pressure went down. But none of these studies could develop an algorithm or a strategy, a combination of heart rate and blood pressure changes that could reliably provide us with clinical information to tell us that the patient was hypovolemic. So all of these studies correctly concluded that you can't reliably use orthostatic vital signs to say, for instance, a specific patient has lost 400 cc's of volume. The biggest problem, though, is we are now using these studies that correctly show orthostatic vital signs don't help quantify the degree of hypovolemia, and they're being extracted to other conditions, conditions not of hypovolemia. You mentioned earlier that we're looking at different clinical conditions. What do you mean by that? So as I mentioned, all of these early studies were trying to look at hypovolemia, so blood loss um, or vomiting and diarrhea. When our colleagues in medicine and neurology and geriatrics are asking us to get orthostatic vital signs, they're usually interested in looking at orthostatic hypotension in patients with syncope or falls um, or dizziness or presyncope. So you've covered two of the main differences between the EM literature and the non-EM literature that may account for our differences of opinion on orthostatic vital signs, namely EM studies including heart rate changes in their definitions, while the geriatricians, for instance, are interested more in the orthostatic hypotension, so the blood pressure component of it. 
And then also in the EM literature, we are focused on hypovolemia as opposed to the syncope and falls. The third main difference you mentioned was the population that they studied. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. So all of these early studies in the emergency medicine literature focused on orthostatic vital signs in a predominantly young population. The mean ages were in the 30s. Um, it may have partially been just the conditions of people presenting to the ED, um, but it also may have been exclusion criteria. For instance, many of these studies excluded individuals who are on calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. On the other hand, because of pathophysiologic changes related to aging, older individuals are at high risk for orthostatic hypotension, completely unrelated to volume status. And that is why this is such an important topic for geriatric EM. Can you elaborate on those physiologic changes? Absolutely. So typically, when a healthy person goes from lying to standing, blood will pool in the legs, in the pulmonary circulation, in the splanctic circulation. The pooling of this blood then creates a decrease in venous return to the heart. The decrease in venous return to the heart will activate baroreceptors, and in turn, the sympathetic nervous system is activated. This will increase your heart rate, cardiac contractility, and this will increase cardiac output. Additionally, um, we'll have constriction of arterioles, which then increase our peripheral vascular resistance. Veins will be constricted, which will increase venous return to the heart. And all of this results in almost instantaneous normalization of blood pressure. So that's what happens when everything works perfectly. What changes occur as we age? Predominantly, the biggest change is that with aging, there is a reduction in this baroreceptor cardio acceleration response. So when the blood flow to the heart decreases, you don't have the normal response that the baroreceptors initiate. Additionally, atherosclerosis makes your vessels more stiff, so it makes it harder to have that compensatory vasoconstriction. And ventricular and vascular stiffening also impedes diastolic filling. Finally, with aging, we also have changes in salt and water conservation, which can impact our volume status. And then the other big component that you mentioned is medications. Those have to play a big role too, right? Absolutely. This is compounded by the fact that older adults are more likely to be on medications like beta blockers and diuretics, all of which will impact this normal physiologic response to standing. And then within the older adult population, are there some individuals who will be at higher risk for orthostatic hypotension than others? And what are the factors that predispose them to, for that? That's a great question, Christina. In particular, individuals with Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia are at particularly high risk of autonomic failure contributing to orthostatic hypotension or even postprandial hypotension. Diabetics and individuals with cardiovascular disease are also more likely to have orthostatic hypotension. Now that we're moving away from the concept of orthostatic vital signs more specifically to the orthostatic hypotension, how do you define and measure it? It seems that people use different definitions or different measurements. Absolutely, Christina, and that has created some additional confusion. There is actually a consensus definition of orthostatic hypotension, uh, and this is a sustained drop in systolic blood pressure by 20 millimeters or diastolic blood pressure by 10 millimeters within three minutes of standing. So the current recommendations recommend obtaining a lying blood pressure and then standing blood pressure at one minute and three minutes after standing as orthostatic hypotension can be delayed in some older adults. 
There was one study that showed those changes at one minute was most predictive of long-term poor outcomes, but it was a relatively young cohort. So for now, we recommend standing blood pressures at one and three minutes and a change in systolic blood pressure by at least 20 millimeters or a change in diastolic blood pressure by at least 10 millimeters. Interestingly, European syncope guidelines use this definition and add a third element, namely a drop in systolic blood pressure to less than 90 on standing. It's important to note that the European syncope guidelines also differentiate between symptomatic orthostatic hypotension and asymptomatic orthostatic hypotension. Can you elaborate on the inclusion of orthostatic vital signs in syncope guidelines? Is there any evidence to support routinely measuring for orthostatic blood pressure in the evaluation of a patient who comes into the ED with syncope? This is what was most interesting to me when I started reviewing this literature. Unbeknownst to me, in 2011, the European Society of Cardiology issued new guidelines for the diagnosis and management of syncope. In these guidelines, they specified that supine and standing blood pressure measurements should be obtained in the initial evaluation. After these guidelines were issued, a number of emergency departments started implementing the guidelines and then reporting on the findings and the impact of these guidelines on patients with syncope. More recently, U.S. syncope guidelines issued by the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association also recommend that the physical exam includes orthostatic heart rate and blood pressure changes in lying, sitting, and standing position. And what have these studies shown? So the proportion of syncope reported due to orthostatic hypotension varied widely between studies. One study reported 4% of patients had orthostatic hypotension as the cause of syncope, where another one reported a high of 24%. But most studies reported that the percentage of patients with syncope who had orthostatic hypotension as the cause was 10 to 20 percent. Were there other factors that could explain this variation? Part of it might be explained by age of the patients included in the study. If you had an older patient population, maybe that would drive you to a larger percentage of patients with orthostatic hypotension. But I think the main factor is really the frequency with which orthostatic vital signs were obtained. That study that said only 4% of the syncope patients were due to orthostatic hypotension only obtained orthostatic vital signs in 14% of patients. The study that reported the high of 24% had actually obtained orthostatic vital signs in 94% of patients. So how often people are measuring orthostatic vital signs probably is contributing to the frequency of detection. Perhaps most interestingly was a study from Italy where they evaluated the implementation of these European syncope guidelines at one facility and compared it to a control group. They found that the percentage of patients who had orthostatic hypotension as the cause of their syncope increased from 6% in the control group to 10% in the intervention group. And they also found that this resulted in decreased hospitalizations, shorter lengths of stay, decrease in diagnostic testing, and decreases in the diagnosis of unexplained syncope. It is really important, though, to note that these studies all require that the patient have both orthostatic hypotension and either syncope or presyncopal symptoms when the vital signs were obtained in the standing position in order to classify it as orthostatic hypotension as the etiology. 
And that's an important distinction because you may have had syncope for some other reason and have orthostatic hypotension but actually no symptoms. So that may not actually mean that the orthostatic hypotension is the cause of syncope. Why is this so important? Orthostatic hypotension is common in older adults. So it's important that we do not misattribute the cause of syncope to orthostatic hypotension when a more serious etiology of syncope is really the cause. So the history must be suggestive of an orthostatic cause of syncope. And in addition to having orthostatic hypotension, the patient must also be symptomatic when postural vital signs are obtained. Well, Maura, so far we've talked about orthostatic vital sign measurement for hypovolemia and for syncope. What about the other indication you mentioned, which was falls in older adults? There really isn't a lot of ED-based literature on this topic. We know from our geriatrician colleagues, we know from our epidemiologists, that orthostatic hypotension is associated with recurrent falls and associated with death due to injury. Very few studies have been done in the ED setting. Of the few studies that are there, we know that symptoms of orthostatic hypotension are associated with recurrent falls, but no one has actually looked at whether obtaining orthostatic vital signs in ED patients who present after a fall, and more importantly, whether mitigating treatments initiated from the ED can prevent future falls. Hopefully, Tess Hogan and Sean Liu will shed some light on this topic in the future. But we do know that given the association between orthostatic hypotension and falls in older adults, our guidelines in the U.S. and also the U.K. recommend that when we're evaluating an older patient after a fall, we should be assessing them for orthostatic hypotension. We've spent some time talking about whether, when, and how to get orthostatic vital signs. What do we do with the information when we get it? They stand up during their orthostatic vital sign check, they're symptomatic, they have orthostatic hypotension. What do we do then to manage this? I think this is another reason why orthostatic hypotension is hard for ER physicians. We like to make people better. We like to fix things. So in the uncommon scenario where someone has orthostatic hypotension from hypovolemia, perfect, we can fix them. We can give them fluids and make them better. But most of the time, orthostatic hypotension in the older adult is a chronic condition that requires chronic management but simply cannot be fixed by us. Perhaps most importantly, though, if we as emergency physicians recognize that orthostatic hypotension is the cause of a syncopal event or the cause of a fall, it may allow us to avoid an unnecessary hospitalization. Yes, and we certainly know that hospitalization can cause significant harm to older patients in and of itself, putting them at risk for delirium, deconditioning, as well as hospital-acquired infections. So what could patients do, potentially in concert with their primary care physician, to help manage their orthostatic hypotension? One consideration is whether there are any medications they're on that are exacerbating the situation. That might be alpha blockers or nitrates or diuretics. Obviously, any medication de-prescribing should be done with the patient's PCP, but this is an important consideration. Patients can also prevent large decreases in blood pressure on standing with very simple maneuvers, such as crossing and uncrossing their legs repeatedly before standing, or going very slowly from a lying to a sitting and to a standing position. Compression stockings may be helpful for some patients, and some patients may benefit from eating smaller meals in order to prevent that splanchnic redistribution of blood. Refractory orthostatic hypotension, though, is best managed on an outpatient basis by a specialist such as a geriatrician or even a neurologist. 
So to summarize, we've talked about the measurement of orthostatic hypotension specifically, more so than the reflex tachycardia. And we've talked about how this should be done by measuring the blood pressure at one minute and three minutes after standing. And then very importantly, trying to figure out whether the patient is symptomatic while they're standing and having this orthostatic hypotension. Otherwise, it can be dangerous to attribute the syncope or fall to that orthostatic hypotension if they're actually truly asymptomatic from it. And then we talked some about treatment. Much of the treatment is going to be managing medications. Most often can be done as an outpatient or hydrating if they're a little bit dehydrated. Maura, what is your practice if you have an older patient come in after a fall or syncopal event? What are you doing with their orthostatic vital signs? So an older patient presenting after a syncopal event, I do obtain orthostatic vital signs. I think that is important, and also our guidelines tell us that we should be doing that. Uh, In older patients with falls, I think it depends a lot on the history that I get. If it is an unexplained fall, maybe the patient has dementia and is not able to give me a clear history, or the patient states that they're not sure why they fell, then I will get orthostatic vital signs. And a patient who gives a really good story of tripping over a curb in shoes that were suboptimal, I may decline to get the vital signs on standing position in that case. But the guidelines tell me that I should be. Well, Maura, I really look forward to reading your paper when it comes out. Thank you so much for taking the time to educate all of us. I am definitely going to be thinking differently about my orthostatic hypotension and orthostatic vital signs overall, and probably will be getting them a little bit more often now and also trying to assess for symptomatology with it.